Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. This is the reading of God's word. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Uh, well, again, um, good morning, everyone. Uh, today, we are closing out our series uh, on the seven churches of Revelation that we titled Letters to the Church. Um, and in some sense, uh, we're not just closing out a sermon series. We're closing out a huge chapter in our church's story today. And, and the reason we wanted to do this series ahead of our first in-person gathering since March of last year is that we don't uh, just want to treat these past 15 months as an anomaly and kind of carry on business as usual. Like there are particular moments in life that break us out of our routine and give us new perspective, you know, moments that kind of force us to take a hard look at ourselves. And, and I feel like this past year has been that for all of us, right? This, this time, you know, this season has changed us. It's changed the way we think about life and church and family and so if there were ever a time for us to be attuned to what God has to say to the church, uh, I would say that time is now. And every one of these letters uh, ends with the same phrase, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I really do believe that the Spirit is speaking to our church and also speaking to the church, capital C, right now uh, in this unpre unprecedented time. Um, now, I wish it didn't have to be this way, but uh, we're closing out our series with maybe the most uh, depressing letter of all, right? Jesus basically saves the worst for last. And uh, this is the only letter of the seven with no affirmation. It's the only letter where Jesus has not one good thing to say about the church. And I find it very interesting that Jesus saves his most scathing rebuke not for Christians who are out there kind of living however they want to live, living immoral lives, committing horrible sins. He saves his worst rebuke for Christians who are lukewarm. Those who go to church but don't really know why. Those who put Christian on their profiles but are generally pretty apathetic about their faith. Those who are neither here nor there. And on the surface, that doesn't seem that bad, right? It doesn't seem like it should warrant such a harsh response. But Jesus comes out swinging. If you take a look at verse 15, he says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. 
So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And to be honest, a more accurate translation for that last part would be, you make me want to vomit. This church doesn't just make Jesus angry, it makes him sick. And what this seems to imply is that there is nothing Jesus despises more than a lukewarm faith. And honestly, uh, you know, all of the letters we, we've looked at so far could probably apply to us in some way, but I'd say this letter in particular should make all of us a little extra uncomfortable. Because I would say if there is one thing that characterizes modern-day American Christianity, it's a lukewarm faith. It's a faith without any real conviction. It's a faith that has little to no impact on our lives and our relationships. Um, you know, I've been talking to a lot of uh, married couples throughout this pandemic, and let's just put it out there. Uh, this season has been really hard on marriages, okay? Um, maybe not as hard if you're newlywed, because um, y'all are still in the honeymoon season. You know, you haven't discovered, like, the worst in each other yet. Um, but for those of you who've been married for a while, um, being quarantined at home with your spouse was challenging. You know, it exposed things uh, you never knew were there. Uh, it brought a bunch of family baggage and personality differences to the surface that before weren't as big of a deal because you weren't spending every waking moment with each other, right? But this past year, you had nowhere to escape, right? And now you're saying things to your spouse like, why do you chew like that, right? You know, and, and like, they're like, I, I've always chewed like this. And I, I've never heard you chew like that, you know? And the thing, thing I tell couples, um, you know, when they start sharing with me that they've been fighting a lot is that uh, fighting isn't always a bad thing because fighting means you still care, right? It means you're still invested. What I think is actually scarier than couples who fight are when couples reach that point when they're just numb and disinterested, when they just don't care anymore. When they adopt the mindset of, it is what it is. It's not great, but it is what it is. I can't change him, but it is what it is. And this is often, I would say, our mindset when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. It's not great, but it is what it is. It doesn't really excite me much. I don't really get much out of worship. I kind of do the community group thing. I do the serving thing. But you know... It is what it is. And let's face it, like e even the most passionate people who were once on fire for God, who were praying and serving and giving, at some point we know they can find their hearts growing apathetic and lukewarm because it's human nature. Now, if you've heard this passage preached before, you may have thought or you may have heard that what Jesus was saying here when he uses the language of cold and hot is that uh, it's better to be really passionate about Jesus or just like hate him altogether than it is to be somewhere in the middle. So like hot meant, you know, you were on fire for God and cold meant, you know, you didn't care about him at all. And, you know, that if you're going to be apathetic, uh, a lot of pastors said you might as well be an atheist because Jesus would prefer that. Um, and I just want to say that definitely is not what Jesus is saying here. And, um, you know, the people of Laodicea, they would have gotten this analogy right away. 
but you kind of have to understand the geography of the city to kind of get to what Jesus was trying to say here. So a uh, quick geography lesson. Uh, Laodicea was a very wealthy city that was like perfectly positioned uh, at the juncture of two important trade routes. Okay, so overall was a great location, uh, but it had one huge issue, no usable water source. Okay, so the city actually had to import their water from other cities nearby. So north of Laodicea was Herapolis, which was famous for its hot springs that were supposed to be like medicinal. So they contained minerals that were supposed to bring healing to the body. And then south of Laodicea, you had Colossae, okay, which was known for its like ice cold mineral water that was really pure and refreshing to drink. So you had hot water from the north and cold water from the south that had to be transported into the city by this very complex aqueduct system. Well, by the time all the water got there, it was disgusting because it was lukewarm. It had gone through all of these aqueducts, and so the water from Herapolis wasn't hot enough to bathe in, so it didn't have its medicinal quality anymore, and the water from Colossae wasn't cold enough to drink, okay, like refreshing enough to drink. And so Jesus is saying, this is the kind of church you are. You're like this lukewarm water. People come to your church to be healed, they come to your church to experience the warmth of community, but instead they get inflicted with more wounds, right? It seems like every day these days we're hearing story after story about churches not being instruments of healing in their communities, but instruments of abuse, right? Preying on victims who, who thought the church was supposed to be a safe space. But Jesus is also saying, look, people also come to your church to be refreshed, to, to get that first gulp of ice-cold water amidst a world that beats them down every day, that makes them feel less than, to, you know, but, but instead they come and they get even more burnt out. They don't get nourished in church. You know, they just get told to do more. They just get told they have to try harder and they don't get to experience that rest or that satisfaction of having their thirst quenched. And Jesus says, this is what happens to your church when Christians become lukewarm in their faith. Well, what causes that, right? What causes a church to become like this? What is the source of our lukewarmness and apathy? Well, listen to what Jesus says in verse 17. He says, you say I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus is saying the problem is not that you have too little, the problem is that you have too much. Jesus ties their wealth and their privilege to their lukewarmness. Okay, just to give you a little background on the city of Laodicea. Laodicea, as I mentioned, was before was one of the wealthiest cities, if not the wealthiest in all of Asia. Okay, in fact, the city was so rich that um, when there was a major earthquake there, they didn't accept government aid from Rome. Okay, they didn't accept the PPP loan that they were giving out, right? Because they basically rebuilt the city from the ground up with, with their own resources. So they weren't just wealthy, they were self-sufficient. They didn't accept help because they felt like they didn't need help. Okay, not only was Laodicea a major financial center, it was also a cultural mecca. Some of the best fashion was coming out of that city because, again, 
Because of its strategic location, it gave it access to rare commodities like black wool, which was used to make beautiful clothes. But, but even that's not all, right? Not only was it a financial hub, a cultural hub, it was also a leading medical hub. Okay, it was home to some of the best hospitals in that region. And one of these hospitals was particularly famous because it, it discovered this special eye salve, which was used to cure like a rare eye disease. Okay, so I mean, we're talking about a city here that was on paper a dream destination. And, and here's what Jesus does. In verse 17, he takes the three things that this city prides itself in, its wealth, its fashion, and it's healthcare, and it flips it all on its head, and he says, you are poor, naked, and blind. Your pockets are full, your portfolio looks great, but your heart is empty. He says, you wear the most stylish clothes, your fashion is awesome, but you're really just covering up your spiritual nakedness. You have this cure that helps people see, but somehow you're the most blind. And in verse 18, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. He's saying all these things you're looking to, to the world to give you, you'll find it in me. He's speaking their language. He's using analogies and illustrations that he knows the people of this city will understand. He's saying, you look so put together on the outside, but I know you're really just trying to compensate for the emptiness and the discontentment you feel on the inside. He's saying, you're not going to find it out there. You're going to find it with me. I think about the story of the woman at the well, you know, who was a prisoner of her past, right? Walking to that same well day after day to draw water to drink, not realizing that it was her soul that was thirsty. And Jesus says to her, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. He says, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. You see, for a city that was so wealthy, and so successful. Isn't it interesting that Laodicea lacked the most basic thing for survival? Water. And what Jesus is trying to say is, why are you looking for that water outside of me? No wonder it's lukewarm. No wonder it doesn't satisfy you. No wonder it doesn't heal you or refresh you. No wonder your faith is dormant and has no real impact on your life. You're settling for cheap alternatives. If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. You know, it shouldn't take much for all of us to make the connection between Christians living in Laodicea back then and Christians living in America in 2021. I mean, you and I live in the wealthiest country in the history of the world. A country where during the first few months of a global pandemic, billionaires somehow increased their total net worth by $637 billion. Okay? And not only do we live in America, most of us live in Los Angeles. 
a city that even by American standards is considered home to the rich and famous, a city that prides itself in being the entertainment capital of the world, the central hub for all things art and culture and fashion. Like friends, we are living in modern day Laodicea. And so it should come as no surprise for you that we too struggle with a lukewarm faith. When you have so many things around you that you can access, when you have so many things around you that can make you feel secure, you can fool yourself into thinking you don't need anyone or anything. And I would say for some of us, the reason why this year was so ridiculously hard was that it was the first time we were stripped of the things that once gave us that sense of security. It took losing the things we once worshipped in order to see that we were drinking lukewarm water all along. Water that was not hot enough to heal the ache of loneliness and depression in our souls, and water that wasn't cold enough to refresh our weary, tired hearts. But you know what I find maybe most encouraging about this letter? And it's honestly hard to find encouragement in a letter where there is no commendation whatsoever. It's that Jesus doesn't just criticize this church and leave them as they are. Like, I love what he says, starting in verse 19. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. He's saying, I know I'm being a little harsh here. I know you don't like hearing all this. I know it feels like I'm giving you like no affirmation whatsoever. But those I love, I rebuke and discipline. I'm only saying this because I love you. It hurts me to see you living this way. And then in verse 20, he says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Even to you, Christians, whose lukewarm faith makes me want to vomit, Jesus says, I make myself available to you. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. It's hard to believe that Jesus can say that. He's saying, I really can't stand anything you do. But here I am. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Jesus is knocking at the door. All we need to do is open it. Notice, Jesus doesn't say, after he gives his criticism, he doesn't say, so now go fix your life, become a more holy person, and if you do that, I'll open the door. No. He says, if you hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in. He doesn't say, I'm rebuking and disciplining you so that you can change your ways and earn my love. Nope. He says, those whom I already love, I rebuke and discipline. You see, every other religion out there tells you to be more fervent and more holy and spiritual. If you are not a Christian and you are joining us today, I'm, I'm so thankful. We want to welcome you. We want, we want this to be a safe space for you to wrestle with your faith. We want to walk alongside you in your journey. But I'm going to tell you this. Um, what separates Christianity from every other religion, like I just said, Every other religion will tell you that you need to do X, Y, and Z. And if you do that, you'll get something from God in return. But the gospel says, 
left to ourselves, it actually doesn't matter how good and moral and Christian we try to be. Like the people of Laodicea, at the end of the day, we're all just going to end up poor, blind, and naked. In fact, sometimes Christians will even try to use our faithfulness and our good deeds and our acts of justice to clothe us. But you see, that's the same problem, different clothes. We're still just trying to cover ourselves. But you see, here's why the cross of Jesus Christ is so profound. Jesus, who introduces himself at the beginning of this letter as the Amen, the end-all, be-all, the only faithful and true witness, he became poor to make us rich. He was stripped naked so that we would be clothed. He was blindfolded and beaten so that we could see. The cure for a lukewarm faith is not in us. It's in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, when Jesus says in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, it's a little bit strange when you read that because he just said in the verse before, you're poor. How do you possibly buy gold from Jesus when you're broke? You can't. And Jesus is making a point there. The only way is for him to buy it for you. And that's what he did. 2 Corinthians uh, 8 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus is saying, If you really knew what it cost me to give you the living water that your soul longs for, the refreshment, that your soul longs for, the healing your soul longs for, the validation, the joy, you could not possibly have an it is what it is type of faith. You could not possibly remain lukewarm. If someone today went and paid off all your debt, it'd be pretty nice, right? Your student loans, mortgage, credit cards. You could not possibly wake up the next morning and be like, that's great, but it is what it is. No. If you really knew what just happened, it would change you from the inside out to receive such an undeserved gift. And what this letter is saying is all we have to do is receive it with open hands. He stands at the door and knocks. Um, I'm reminded of an old uh, cheesy country song. And I know some of y'all don't like country music. I don't mind it that much. Um, but the song is called Looking for Love. And uh, most of you probably don't even know that this is where the famous phrase, looking for love in all the wrong places, like that is actually from this song, okay? But I feel like these lyrics like perfectly capture the heart of this letter. Okay, listen to what it says. Well, I spent a lifetime looking for you. Single bars and good time lovers were never true. Playing a fool's game, hoping to win, and telling those sweet lies and losing again. And I was alone then, no love in sight, and I did everything to get me through the night. Don't know where it started or where it might end, I turned to a stranger just like a friend. I was looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love in too many faces, searching their eyes, looking for traces of what I'm dreaming of, <clears throat> hoping to find a friend and a lover. I'll bless the day I discover another heart looking for love. 
And then you came, knocking on my heart's door. You're everything I've been looking for. No more looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love in too many faces, searching their eyes, looking for traces of what I'm dreaming of. Now that I found a friend and a lover, I bless the day I discover you, oh you, looking for love. I know it's a little cheesy, but I mean, it hits it right on the head. I bless the day I discover you, oh you, looking for love. And I think what we need to discover this morning is that Jesus is already waiting at the door. He's been there. He's knocking. He's wanting to come in and eat with us. And so this morning, may we all simply do that. Just accept his invitation into a life of true joy, true peace, and true satisfaction. Let me say a prayer for us. Gracious God, um, we come to you this morning, um, and it's hard to believe um, what this season, you know, what this journey has been like up to this point. Um, and I remember in the early days of the pandemic, um, as hard as it was, you know, so many of us felt like there was uh, there was a refining happening as we were kind of taken from the things that once gave us a sense of comfort and security and peace, when we were starting to open our eyes and realize that these things ultimately did not refresh our souls, they ultimately did not give us the satisfaction that we longed for, but like everything else, at some point, uh, many of us throughout this pandemic, we kind of just started to forget that. And I pray that this letter, and in fact this entire series, I pray that it would have woken us up. I pray that we as the church would open our eyes to see the ways that we've forgotten you. You know, we think about the first sermon in this series, to see the ways that we've forgotten our first love. And now at the end of our series, to see the ways that our hearts have grown lukewarm, that our hearts have grown apathetic, where we've kind of just adopted an it-is-what-it-is type of faith. But Lord, I pray that as we uh, begin to move back into some semblance of normalcy, as we begin to regather as a church, I pray that we would not just go back to the way things were. I pray that you would reignite our hearts uh, for you and reignite our hearts for one another and reignite our hearts for your mission. I think many of us, if we were to really ask ourselves, really don't know why we're Christian. We don't know why we go out to church. We don't know what all of this means. And I think a big part of that is so many of us have become self-sufficient. So many of us have begun to depend on ourselves. But Lord, I pray that you would, you would help us to see how foolish that is, how foolish it is to place our hope and trust in the things of this world. So Lord, I pray that this morning you would open our eyes to see that you're knocking at our door, that we would open our ears to hear what the Spirit has to say to the church, what the Spirit has to say to each and every one of us. We thank you for your grace and your goodness that has sustained us through this entire season. We ask that you continue to protect us individually and as a church as we move forward in this next chapter.
Uh, we love you. We give you all the praise, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.